This is the Farm and Garden Show, and I'm your host, Elizabeth Archer. Happy 420 to everybody who celebrates. This is a 420 show. I also want to do a shout out to my precious daughter, May, who is the best Easter egg hunter I think I've ever seen. Last weekend, we got to do a lot of fun Easter egg themed things. We also went to a Seder dinner, and it is also the month of Ramadan, Ramadan Mubarak, to everyone who celebrates. Tomorrow is Eid, which is a very special and holy day for um, observant Muslims and probably even non-observant Muslims. Just a really cool, special holiday. So welcome, everybody, to the Farm and Garden Show. So happy to be back with you. My guest today is Dr. Amanda. You know, Amanda, I feel bad because we're friends, but I don't know if it's Riemann or Ryman, and I'm going to let... It's Ryman. Dr. Amanda Ryman, a social ethnobotanist who has been studying the relationship between cannabis, people, and society for over 20 years. She is the founder of Personal Plants, a platform designed to help people develop healthy, balanced relationships with psychoactive plants, and the chief knowledge officer for New Frontier Data, an analytics company serving the legal cannabis industry. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me, and happy 420. So sorry that I don't know how to pronounce your last name. That's embarrassing. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I have never done a cannabis-themed farm and garden show. I know partially because we have um, the Cannabis Hour, but, you know, it's definitely farming-related. And for anyone listening, if you don't know what 420 is, here's a little history. April 20th is widely celebrated as quote unquote weed day or pot day or cannabis day or smoke them up, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there are a lot of rumors about how and why this is the date we celebrate marijuana, but the most credible origin story comes from our neighbor to the South Marin County. In 1971, five students at San Rafael High School would meet at 4.20 p.m. after their extracurriculars were done for the day to get stoned, and 4.20 became their secret code. So, yeah, that's the history. Had you heard that particular version of the history, Amanda? Oh, yes. Growing up, I heard all kinds of urban legends that it was police code for smoking cannabis, um, you know, all kinds of things. But yes, you are correct. The Waldos was the name of the group of friends, and they would meet every day at 420 uh, to consume cannabis. And thus, that, that became kind of their secret code. And wow, they just started a whole social movement. Were they called Waldos because they met at like a wall? I, I have no idea where the actual walls, but they're still around. Did they around. wear red I mean, and white striped shirts? They make some appearance uh, usually around 420 oh my and gosh. tell their stories. So, yeah, like the original that. high school kids from the 70s? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. They're getting up there in, in years. <laughs> that's when you need cannabis the most. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, well, cool. I'm super stoked to have you on the show. I'd like to start by asking how and when did you decide to make cannabis a focal point of both your studies and your your career? Well, it was kind of a right place at the right time kind of scenario. You know, I started consuming cannabis when I was about 20 years old, living in Chicago, uh, cannabis being very, very much illegal. And I was really fascinated by the whole process I had to go through in order to obtain it. 
Mind you, this is pre-cell phone, so it was like pagers and waiting by the phone for your seller to call. Sure. <laughs> I also grew my first plant around then in my closet in my apartment in Chicago, and we really didn't hear that much about what was happening out here in California. This was like uh, 2000, 2001, so we had medical cannabis out here in California, but it wasn't something that was really that popular in the news. And so when I moved out to Oakland in 2002 to start uh, my PhD in social welfare, I was really interested in studying drug policy and substance use and really how we approach drug policy and the criminalization of substance use. But I happened to move to the Bay Area. And I joined Students for Sensible Drug Policy at Berkeley, and they introduced me to this whole world of dispensaries that was happening in the Bay Area. Um, I became a medical cannabis patient in 2002. I started going to dispensaries, and from a social service and community health perspective, what I saw happening was unlike anything we had in traditional healthcare. Um, just early dispensaries were much more than just pot stores. They offered a lot of social and holistic health services to their consumers. And a lot of folks who were coming to dispensaries really didn't have access to a lot of these services. They didn't have insurance or they had very limited insurance. So that model was really fascinating to me. And I decided to study it for my doctoral dissertation, which ended up being one of the very first studies ever to survey patients from inside the dispensary and ask them their motivations for consumption, what they were getting out of going to the dispensary. And at the time, you could really count the number of cannabis researchers on one hand because there was no federal funding for it. Um, I kind of got thrust into this world of studying cannabis. And this was really when the laws started to change so I had the opportunity in real time to study the impact of the fall of prohibition on consumers, what happens when cannabis is destigmatized, how does that influence who's using it. And so it was really being able to observe this very historical shift in real time and then having the background as a researcher in order to study it. And so I've been doing that ever since. That is super interesting. And I didn't actually know all of that about your background. What was the primary or maybe set of primary reasons that you discovered people were using, <clears throat> excuse me, the dispensaries as medical marijuana patients in those early years? Well, you know, the early medical cannabis movement was really born out of the HIV AIDS crisis in San Francisco in the 1980s and 90s. And a lot of the early dispensary owners and activists were not only women, but people from the LGBTQ plus community. And so when we saw these early dispensaries, uh, they had such a social and community model of care because that was also meeting the needs of the HIV AIDS patient population, which was a community that because of misinformation about how the disease was spread, faced a lot of social and community isolation and found a lot of comfort and support within the medical cannabis community. So the idea of offering people a place to sit some fresh food, um, healthy food, access to legal support or peer support, um, or even entertainment just to help people get their minds off of what was going on with their lives was a very much a part of the early dispensaries. And there was even a dispensary um, in San Francisco that used to offer doggy daycare because a lot of folks that came in had pets and also had a lot of doctor's appointments where they couldn't bring their dog. So they could leave the dog in this room at the dispensary to play, go to their doctor's appointment, and then come back. And 
I think that, you know, one of the downsides of where we are today with cannabis is that we've lost a lot of that community focus. And there are a lot of some dispensaries that still really try to maintain that, even some here locally. But back then, it really was more about a patient-centered care approach, less concern about selling a product, and more concern about providing a safe and therapeutic environment. So now that you know, marijuana is legal in California. What is the status of medical marijuana? Can you still get a prescription? What benefits does that have? Or are people pretty much just, even if they need it medicinally, are they buying it recreationally? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, we do see that when a medical state starts an adult use program, the number of medical cannabis recommendations goes down. And it's really for the reason you're saying, right? Some folks say, you know, I use it medicinally and I could get a card, but I don't use it that often. Or, you know, I don't really feel the need to go into the program and pay the money for the doctor's appointment or to get the card. So I'm just going to go ahead and purchase it without a card. In California, you're shopping at the same store, regardless if you're a patient or not, but if you are a patient, the benefit you get is you don't pay the sales tax, right? so the eight point something percent sales tax, and you also have higher purchase limits. So people who are not patients can purchase one ounce of flour, or I believe seven grams of concentrate at a time. If you're a patient, you have higher limits. And then also in many places, patients can grow more themselves than uh, folks who are growing simply recreationally. Yeah, that seems like the real benefit is the ability to grow more of your own, because I imagine it can be kind of a hassle getting a prescription. It's well, it's not. Um, <laughs> oh, good. Great. Glad to hear it. <laughs> you know, it's primarily telehealth appointments. And really the goal of the doctor in that situation is not necessarily as a healthcare provider, but it's somebody making sure that you qualify for a medical card in the state that you're in. Now, in California, there is no list of conditions. So you just have to be 18 or older, and you basically have to be able to describe to the doctor what condition you have and how cannabis has affected you. And if you're good at that, then you're going to get a card. There are other states that have limited lists of conditions. So it's not just about having that appointment, but also having some kind of evidence, a diagnosis, that you have one of the conditions that's on the list. Um, so, you know, the reality though, Elizabeth, is that when we do research with uh, cannabis consumers, we see that over half of them are using cannabis for both recreational and medicinal purposes. So sure. most folks will say, you know, I use it to help me sleep or I use it because I have back pain, but I also use it on a Saturday afternoon before I go to a concert or a museum or when my friends come over Friday night. So although we're seeing a lot of dual use. So it's really up to the individual about whether or not becoming an official patient makes sense to them in a way, almost like, do you get a Costco card, right? Like, do I go to Costco <laughs> enough to warrant paying for the card? Or am I someone there that goes there like twice a year? And I think that's a, the question a lot of folks are asking themselves about whether or not to, to get a patient card. And you in your line of work help people with their relationship to cannabis. At what point did you decide to make that a focus? Was that once it became legal and you saw people struggling with it more? Or what has, have, I mean, people will always, as long as there are substances, people will struggle with their relationship to substances. So I'm just wondering, like, when you decided to make that a focus and kind of what that entails. 
So, you know, I am a harm reductionist. Uh, so I believe that there are a lot of ways to minimize the harms, uh, potential harms associated with using different substances without demanding abstinence. And that demanding abstinence is a one way to prevent harm, but it's certainly not the only way. And for many people, it's a way that doesn't work. And so this doesn't just hold true for substances like heroin and, and cocaine and what we might call the hard drugs. But as you said, you know, managing your relationships with anything that goes into our bodies and makes us feel a certain way or has an emotional attachment is something we have to be mindful of. And the reality is, is that we have prohibition of cannabis for so long in the U.S. We have so much propaganda around all cannabis is bad and it's going to do all these terrible things for you and it has no medical benefit that a lot of times we see the argument in favor of cannabis take it too far in the other direction, right? Cannabis cures everything and there's never a problem and you can use it as much as you want and it shouldn't be restricted at all. And the reality is, is that the truth is somewhere in the middle, unsurprisingly. And so from a scientific perspective, from a pragmatic perspective, I understand that cannabis is a plant that has a lot of therapeutic benefits across the lifespan. You know, I said before that people that are, you know, we're in high school in the 70s need cannabis the most. And, you know, that's funny, but it's also true, right? As we get older, we have more aches and pains and trouble sleeping and issues regulating some of our body systems. We may be more sensitive to pharmaceutical drugs because our metabolism changes. We may find ourselves more sensitive to alcohol and not want to engage in that anymore. And so cannabis really becomes a vital therapeutic tool in older age. But if you don't develop a healthy relationship with the plant when you're younger, it's going to be hard to maintain a healthy relationship with it until you get to the age where it really, really becomes valuable. And so I feel that one of my roles is to change the way society looks at people who use substances, but it's also to take the propaganda out of the discussion and help people with real tools that's going to make sure that they're maximizing the benefits and minimizing the harms. I'm like snapping over here if I could snap. <laughs> yes to all of that. That actually that just reminded me that recently I discovered that someone I know who is definitely older and I would describe as quite conservative um told me that he had started taking CBD for some aches and pains and as you and I know but maybe listeners don't know in order for CBD to be the most effective, you need a small amount of THC to activate it. And so I don't remember what the ratio was, but it was some, you know, number of grams of C, uh, CBD to like one gram of THC. And he just couldn't believe how effective it was, how immediately effective it was, how much better he was feeling. But then he said, but I'm also so snacky at night. <laughs> <laughs> So that was that was his experience with CBD. And I was like, that seems like a good payoff to have some extra snacks at night if your body feels better. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I hear that a lot. You know, folks, um, even people that smoked pot when they were younger, right? Folks that, again, went to high school in the 70s and, you know, maybe smoked a joint here or there and then, you know, stopped doing it for a long time are curious about going back to it for therapeutic reasons. Um, yeah. My parents are who are in their 70s. They use cannabis for sleep. 
And so, you know, at night when they're watching TV before bed, they'll have a little hit off the vape pen and it really helps them sleep through the night. And sleep is not only one of the most important activities in, in to our health, but it becomes increasingly more difficult as we get older. Sure. And so there's a lot of ways that cannabis can be a therapy without it having to be intoxicating. Well, and so much of the stigma has come off of it. And there are still a lot of sort of like mistruths out there about that or, you know, false propaganda, um, certainly at the federal level. Do you think we're going to see federal legalization anytime soon? Oh, you know, for about 10 years, I've been saying 2025. Okay. And we're almost to 2025. And I have to decide whether I'm going to expand my prediction. Um, but here's the thing. The public is there. Right. Every poll that comes out, no matter who conducts the poll, shows that not only do a strong majority of Americans feel that cannabis should be legal for adult use, but majorities of both parties, Democrat and Republican, think that cannabis should be legal for adult use. So the issue isn't public will. The issue, I feel, is that now because it has such strong public support, and there's very few issues in America today that have such strong bipartisan support, that politicians feel they need to keep it in their back pocket as like a get out of jail free card. So that if they do something bad or they're really looking for a lot of support quickly, they can pull that out and come out in favor of cannabis legalization and it'll gain them a lot of favor. Now, unfortunately, that really leaves consumers and the industry as pawns in this game. But I I do feel that what when we're going to see it pulled out is when when someone's behind the eight ball and they really, really need I mean, we have our allies that we've always had, but it's not enough. Um, You know, we can't even get safe banking provisions through the legislature. So it's really, I think, going to take someone feeling like this is their ticket um, in order for for us to have movement. I mean, if the Republicans can't find a way to pay our debts, then they might need a popular measure sooner rather than later. Seriously. And I mean, and it does generate a lot of tax revenue. Um, we have no evidence that youth cannabis use increases after legalization happens. Um, we see reductions in opioid prescriptions and opioid use after legalization happens. We don't see any increased crime in neighborhoods where dispensaries exist. Um, in places where cannabis is not legal, people are just driving to neighboring states because pretty much every state now borders another state that's legal. Right. So Texas, everyone's just driving to New Mexico and Oklahoma, and Texas is missing out on that tax revenue. So keeping cannabis illegal is becoming increasingly difficult to defend. Um, so I, I do believe at some point there, there will be a tipping point. When they crash through the debt ceiling, they're going to offer us <laughs> right, weed as a consolation prize. Exactly. <laughs> well, let me take a minute to reintroduce the show and us. If you're just joining us, this is the Farm and Garden Show. I am your host, Elizabeth Archer, here on the weediest of holidays, 420, with Dr. Amanda Ryman, who is a so- social ethnobotanist who has been studying the relationship between cannabis, people, and society for over 20 years. I have learned today that Amanda was one of the original marijuana researchers in the world. So you have some uh, some cred. <laughs> uh, in a little while, we are going to open the phone lines for anyone who has questions uh, for Amanda. In the meantime, we got away from this a little bit, but 
I do want to ask you, in your experiences, uh, I love the, the harm reductionist definition you give yourself. What is one piece of advice that you would give people who may be struggling with their own relationship, either to cannabis or perhaps another substance or even, you know, like coffee? Well, that's a really good question. And I think the key is really identifying what is a habit. Um, so a lot of things can become habits. And a lot of times things become habits because we start to rely on the way that they make us feel. Most habits are not the same as addictions, right? They're just things that we do regularly and that our brain kind of expects to happen. And so I do believe that cannabis is not addictive in the traditional sense. I do think caffeine is addictive. Um, but I do think that both can be habit forming. And so if you feel that cannabis has become a habit, perhaps you're using it more than you'd like to, perhaps you feel it's not giving you the same joy that it used to, perhaps you get anxiety when you don't know if you're going to be able to consume. These are things to notice. But I, one of the important things about it is not to judge yourself. You know, we do a really bad job in society of moderating our use of things, especially when it's something that makes us feel good. I mean, food is a perfect example, right? We do not have a very healthy relationship with food um, because there's so much more to it than just nourishment. And so same with cannabis. We really just have to be mindful of how much we're consuming and whether consumption is serving our needs. So the one piece of advice I would have for folks, if you think you're consuming too much or perhaps it's become too much of a habit, the first suggestion I have is take a break. And that can be a 48-hour break. That can be a 28-day break. Just give yourself time to better understand that relationship and how you feel when you're not engaging in that habit. And then the other thing I would say is it's important for folks to recognize what we call your minimum effective dose. Most cannabis use is intentional, meaning that people are doing it for a reason. And that reason could be to relieve pain. That reason could be because I'm bored. That reason could be to help me sleep. Or that reason could be to make the, doing the dishes more interesting. But we have a reason. And so one thing that people can try is to ingest just a little bit. So maybe one to two hits if you're ingesting through inhalation or maybe five milligrams of THC if your usual is dose of an edible is 10, and then stop and really pay attention to whether your needs were met. And if your need was met, don't consume anymore. A lot of times our needs get met and we say, wow, I feel really good now. If I had more, I'd feel even better. But that builds tolerance and it feeds the habit. So figure out what your minimum effective dose, the smallest amount you can take and still meet that consumption intention and then put it away and then place boundaries around your consumption. Maybe you're not going to consume um, until five o'clock in the evening, or maybe you're going to limit your consumption to two times a day or one time a day or one time a week. And really think about, again, getting your needs met. But at the same time, making sure that you're not overindulging. That is such like solid advice. And it's so practical. <laughs> it seems like it should be kind of intuitive. Um, but for a lot of people, especially people who may be in stuck in a in a bad habit or not even necessarily bad, but just something they'd like to change. It can be hard when you want to change something to see what your options are. Um, so... Absolutely. And so that's why, you know, an important part of this is non-judgment, right? Because we are very hard on ourselves and we tend to throw ourselves into this cycle of pride and shame, 
right? I was good today. I was bad today. That was good for me. That was bad for me. And so I encourage folks to lighten up on themselves and just notice their patterns without judging themselves for those patterns. Amanda, I love it. I love all of this. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. For that. Um, yeah, just I hope people are listening and feeling like there is hope to make change that they're that they're maybe wanting to make. Um, well, let's shift gears a little bit. As you know, we had a very long, wet winter, but it's finally springtime, uh, which means that greenhouses are full of veggie starts and people are planting things. Um, I don't know anything about the cannabis growing cycle. Is it like contingent on springtime weather or i assume it's different if you're doing an outdoor grow versus like yes. indoor um i that's a good question yeah. yeah that's a great question so cannabis is an annual uh so it blooms once and then dies uh, a good rule of thumb is not to put your plants outside your cannabis plants until it is um above 50 degrees uh at night uh, because that can damage seedlings if it gets too cold. And yes, you can grow your cannabis indoors. You can grow it outdoors. We live in an amazing climate for cannabis cultivation in Mendocino County. Cannabis loves very hot, dry days and then a large temperature differential at night. And it also doesn't want to get wet when it's flowering. Um, it likes to kind of stay on the drier side. And we have that, right? Because we don't have rain at all during the summer. So we really have a fantastic climate for cultivating cannabis. Now, cannabis can be grown from seed or clone. Um, so you can go to a dispensary, you can buy a clone, which of course is a clipping from the mother plant. The benefit of growing from a clone is that you know it's gonna be female because it's the female plants that produce the flowers, um, but also because the seedling stage, the plant can be very vulnerable. So sometimes it can die before it really takes hold. And so when you have a clone, you're kind of past that vulnerable stage. One of the benefits of growing from seed is that you tend to get a bigger, hardier plant because it's less of a carbon copy. Um, and then also with seed, you can have really interesting variability even within the same strain where a clone is just going to be a cutting from the mother. So all the clones from the same mother are going to be the same plant. Um, growing from seed, you're going to germinate your seeds um, with, you know, some water and an airtight container or uh, plastic wrap over a plate. Once the little tail roots pop out, you're going to plant those in soil. Now, cannabis is reactive to the light because it's an annual, right? So it's going on this light cycle. And so cannabis will be in a vegetative state for anywhere from a month to three months, depending on when you plant. And then as soon as we hit the summer solstice and it starts to get less light, as soon as the, the nighttime light starts to go away, um, your plant is going to be triggered into flowering. And then it's going to flower until about October. And that's usually when it's harvested. Um, so, of course, if you're growing indoors, there's all kinds of tricks you can do. So you can let your your plant grow in a vegetative state for three weeks and then you can switch the lights off in the room for 12 hours and it will trigger it into flowering. Um, so outside, you're definitely going to be more at the whims of the environment, but there's so many benefits to growing outdoors, not just the sustainability piece um, and, you know, not needing artificial light, 
but also because cannabis is really part of a healthy ecosystem. It's a bioremediator. It really feeds the soil. It's an amazing companion plant. And being outside and exposed to the natural elements, not only does it usually produce a healthier, hardier plant, but a research study came out not too long ago that showed that cannabis grown outdoors actually has a wider variety of cannabinoids and terpenes, which are the smells in the plant, than cannabis grown indoors. Interesting. These are all things I didn't know. I've only been, well, I guess not only, I've been in Mendocino County for 11 years. Um, but it's just, it's not really my area of expertise. I've never tried. It's the farm and garden show, but I often joke that I'm not really much of a farmer or even admittedly <laughs> a gardener. Well, the great thing about growing cannabis is it's really easy. I mean, it is quite literally a weed. And even though a lot of folks have very specific and very complicated techniques that they apply to cultivation, especially here in Mendocino, where people are craft farmers and really have spent decades perfecting the artisanal way that they grow cannabis, for just regular folks like you and me, it's just a matter of having some soil, sunlight, water, and then adding some nutrients throughout the plant's life cycle. Just like that, huh? Just like that. <laughs> well, we are going to take just a little music break. Stay with us. We will be back in two minutes with Dr. Amanda Ryman. We are talking about weed on 420. Hang out with us. Welcome back to the Farm and Garden Show. I am your host, Elizabeth Archer. I'm joined by Dr. Amanda Ryman, and we are talking about all things cannabis on this holiest of weed holidays, 420. We are going to open the phone lines for folks who have questions. The number to call is 707-895-2448. So while we're waiting to see if we get any calls, can we, before the break, we were talking about growing your own. And what are the current regulations in California for people who want to do just that? Uh, sure. So in California, people who are not patients, who are adult consumers, can grow six plants per household. And um, so the big question is, where can they grow those plants? Now, according to state law, the plants have to be in a secure location away from public view. And that is pretty much what the Mendocino County law says. So cannabis cultivation must occur within or on the grounds of a private dwelling or accessory structure um, and may contain no more than six cannabis plants with a total canopy area of no more than 100 square feet. Now, Willits, so that's the county, um, Willits uh, has a locked area not visible from a public place, and Ukiah actually has the most restrictive. Ukiah, they're supposed to be indoors, which just kills me to even oh. say bad for the plants. Why? I have to say that. You know, because Ukiah is a more densely populated area, um, I, you know, I did not hear the arguments uh, when this was happening. It was probably right after I moved up here. Um, but my guess is the argument was that the houses are so close together that, you know, it's going to disturb the neighbors or there's going to be theft. You know, a lot of this kind of nimbyism, which yeah. is, you know, not in the backyard. <clears throat> sure. Um, I think that has a lot to do with it. 
Um, you know, to be honest, I'm not, of course, going to tell anybody not to to break the law. But if you live somewhere where you don't have neighbors and no one can see what you're doing, it's probably okay to have them outdoors. <laughs> um, Especially if you but, have six plants or less. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But that technically is the rule in Ukiah that they are supposed to be inside. Also, I don't, as I've said, I don't know a lot about growing weed, but I do know what it smells like. And I know it can be kind of stinky when you're harvesting. But to me, the stinkiest time is when it's like drying. Yes. Um. So I don't even know that it would be that impactful in your backyard. But I also don't know that I've ever lived next to anybody growing it. Well, maybe you have and you just didn't and know. And I just didn't know. <laughs> Um, I do know that I have lived next to people who have dried and transported a great deal of it. And you can always smell that. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, you know, we definitely, you know, during harvest time, Mendocino has this really interesting combination of wine and weed harvest smells. Yes. Both very, very pungent. pungent. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So speaking of outdoor grows, I imagine, and of wine, so when there's wildfires, smoke has a huge effect on grapes. What, for outdoor grows, what is the similar effect on uh, marijuana plants if there's wildfire smoke? Oh, so a very similar effect. So especially because the wildfires tend to be around September, October, which is when the, the plants have flowered, right? So we have the buds. If the fires happen before the plant flowers and it's in the vegetative state, it's not going to have as much of an effect. But if it's happening when there are buds, then yes, the, the buds can get what they call smoke taint, um, which means that they have the odor of smoke. Now, whether or not that translates into a toxic situation largely depends on the source of the fire. So if you have a fire that's burning homes, uh, metal, glass, that kind of Plastic. thing. Plastic. Right, right. Then you're going to have a lot more toxins in the air. And so if those toxins land on the buds, it's likely they will fail the test uh, when they have to be tested before they can go into retail. We have a zero tolerance policy in California on cannabis for pretty much everything uh, when it is tested. So any of that type of smoke is really not going to be good news. Um, if it's purely wildfires, so it's just organic matter, um, trees and grass, then you may have smoke taint, but you won't necessarily have a product that won't pass testing. Well, and it's interesting because I know grapes that get smoke taint, it's very hard to make a good wine out of that. But, you know, marijuana, if you're harvesting it to smoke, does... <laughs> yeah, it's really about the consumer, right? So, you know, I actually have a cultivar at home right now from a farm in Sonoma that was harvested uh, during some fires last year. And it has just the faintest, faintest campfire smell to it. But does it taste different when you use it? Does it does not taste no. different. Um, but, you know, it also has a very high terpene count in general. So that campfire smell is really overpowered by all the other delicious terpenes that are in there. Um, if it didn't have that and it just smelled like campfire, I could see it maybe turning some folks off. Um, but, you know, in reality, a lot of the farms up here produce such amazing product that a little bit of smoke taint, as long as it's still safe, isn't going to harm the consumer's opinion. So you mentioned California having basically a zero tolerance policy for when the marijuana is tested, if certain, you know, toxins or residues or whatever are found in it, then it can't be sold. That's only for legally operating operations that are submitting their product for 
testing. Would you say that's one of the reasons that some operations have chosen not to go the legal route? Um, you know, that's a good question. I think it's probably a combination of things. You know, that might be one thing. Uh, you know, it may be that folks felt that their product wasn't going to be able to meet the standards of testing. But I think more likely it's the cost of entry into the market. Right. Um, extremely expensive to get a license. And what costs even more that, that hits people up here, cultivators up here, especially hard is the requirements of what the land has to be like in order to be licensed. You know, if you think about agricultural land and having to have a paved road and if you have work Workers having to have bathrooms and a parking lot and, you know, not being able to, to cut down any trees or do any grading. And so a lot of the early farms up here, because they were happening during prohibition and people didn't want to be out in the open, were being done on land that were either part of someone's homestead or was easy to hide, or was up in the hills. And unfortunately, there's a mismatch between the type of land that that is and the type of land that we usually grow agriculture on. And so it's been really hard, and it's been a very hard fight, uh, both on the part of the farmers here in the community and the state to figure out how to handle it, to really figure out how to bring people into compliance. But that's a lot of money lost. You know, if people who are, especially who are seasonal farmers, they lose a whole season because they are, they don't have the money to, to do the, the changes that they need to do to their land. That's enough to put them out of business. So, um, it's been really tough. Uh, I think that that's probably way more to blame for folks not wanting to come into the regulated market versus um, concerns about testing. And I do understand that in Mendocino County, I'm, I don't know if this is true in other counties, but it's my understanding that when it was legalized in California, it sort of was on a county by county basis to figure out the process. And that Mendocino has really struggled with that. And a lot of producers have either gone out of business or have stopped trying to get, uh, you know, legally permitted because it was just such a money sink without really any end in sight to like a, a good path to legalization for small farmers. What is, is that? true is mendocino you know doing better um well i have hope um and you know my my hope really lies in the fact that i think consumers are becoming more sophisticated and are understanding what craft and what quality really is you know one of the remnants of prohibition was this belief that potency equaled quality and that things that were higher in thc meant it was a more quality product and now of course you're in wine we know that people aren't like, oh, that 15% Zinfandel is way better and more and worth more than that 12%. Um, that's not how we buy alcohol, right? We understand that small wineries that produce a small amount of very good product fetch a higher price. Uh, we all know the two buck chucks out there and we all know, you know, the biodynamic, beautiful craft wine. Um, cannabis consumers are getting there. They're starting to understand more about terpenes and other components of what makes a quality plant. They're starting to better appreciate the small farmers and the product that they produce. But it's tough. It's like turning the Titanic around in a way. And I think we're getting there. My fear is that the barrier to entry is so high 
that will it be too late when folks finally are like, oh, I know what the best weed is. It's from this small, organic, you know, hillside farm in Mendocino. Is that farm still right. going to be? Will it still be there? And yeah. for people who are listening who maybe consume uh, and don't grow or don't want to grow, what is the best way to find and support small local producers in Mendocino County? Well, Mendocino has a lot of really great dispensaries. And one of the great things about the dispensaries here is that most of them have really taken pains to represent the local farming community. So, you know, um, just without playing favorites, but just from my own experience, um, Plant Shop, which is over off of Ore Springs, uh, they work with the Mendocino Cannabis Alliance to offer a lot of very small farms uh, in their selection. And so if you're looking to better discover who's growing right here in our community, uh, who's doing it organically and outdoors. Um, I highly recommend checking them out. And then Heritage, which is over by the Fish Peddler on Cunningham, they have a hashery. And so they actually specialize in like craft, locally made hash, which is one of the oldest ways to consume cannabis. And you can actually watch the hash being made, kind of like going to a brewery and watching them brew the beer. And so these are experiences that I think really give a lot of hope to a region like Mendocino to attract people from outside of our community who want to better understand the origins of the cannabis plant um, in kind of modern day cultivation. Cool. I did not know that existed. Hey, we have a caller. Let's see if you're still there. Hi, caller. You are live on the air. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, so everything's good. This is so cool. I'm really enjoying your show. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I happened to bring my phone down to the beach and take the dog for a walk, and I got your radio program playing, and I wouldn't have believed I'd be laying down with my legs up in the air calling you and talking with you. It's Did you have really a question nice. for Amanda? Yes, I do. I've always been puzzled by the word flower. I've been growing since 78, and I, I was always under the impression that the flower was the male pollen that was going to come out and, and fertilize, and that the fruit was the Brussels sprout, was the artichoke, was the marijuana bud. And so you have fruit and flower. And now people refer to flower as the bud. And I don't understand it, and I'd like to. Oh, great question. Thanks for the call. That's one question. Can I, can okay. I, can I hear the answer on here? Uh, sure. Have one more question. Yeah, go ahead, Amanda. Um, yeah, so cannabis blooms. Uh, the female plants bloom. And that bloom yeah, I know is... That. Yeah. Right. right. So that bloom is the flower. And it has the pistils that attract the pollen from the males. The males have pollen sacs. That they develop and sacks open and they, and they have, have responsible they, me, they have flowers and they have petals and they open up like a flower and out comes the pollen like all other flowers. And that's what's perfect. It doesn't, it doesn't look like it doesn't look like a geranium or a, a petunia or, so or something like that. It, it's referred to as the bloom. So I, it's I, what I, it, got it. No, I mean I understand it. I'm not arguing that it's not real, that that's the way it is. I'm just under, trying to understand where it might have come from. You know, where uh, that kind of, to me it's a misconception, but I mean, you don't call an artichoke the, the flower or anything, it's probably whatever pollinator, however it grew. There's probably some other part that's the flower. Yeah, I mean, I would have to do a little research to when the, when the first use of that was in relation, but, yeah. you know, cannabis is 
uh, been with us for um, over 8,000 years. So I'd be happy to look mm -hmm. into that. And uh, I'll let Elizabeth know, and she can announce it on a next show. Happy to. Okay. Thanks so much for the call. Oh, I got, I got, ooh, I got uh, some other callers. Go quick. Go real quick. Okay, quick. Is, I'm, I'm giving away marijuana from last year. I'm not going this year yet. And I'd like to hear how you're talking about doing, doing the warm weather, so I don't really feel I'm too late yet. Um, but I don't have that desire that I did have before. And like I say, I'm giving away. I have. I don't have any more, but I had enough where I could give away people's stuff to, that I paid $200 to have it done. Now, I had friends that were getting it done for $100. And I said, no, let's keep paying the prices that it should be. And then that way we can keep the, the, our prices up the way they should be. And anyway, I'll say goodbye. And thank you for your show. <laughs> thank well, you thank for you the for call. call. And I, think we, I think we all got greedy. And I have, actually, I'm embarrassed to say, I'm ashamed that I have, I have holes from 1984 and 1985 and all throughout a lot of time that I took nutrients and things out hey, and changed. Hey, I'm, I'm really uh, sorry. The phone's blowing up and I got to let you go. Thanks right, for bye the bye. call. Bye. Hi, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, very interesting show. Thanks for doing this. Uh, so I, uh, I have a couple of questions from the perspective of, you know, someone who likes to smoke some dope and, um, you know, and has been buying dope uh, for my own use for many years. And, you know, for one thing, one question is, or a comment is that, you know, it's kind of, you know, when people talk about going to dispensaries and the market and stuff, it's really a strange experience for me and people of my age uh, <clears throat> to go into a dispensary because you used to be able to just buy an ounce, you know, somewhere just, you know, for if you're going to a party or something. From a guy. And now you go to a dispensary <laughs> and you buy an eighth of an ounce in a little glass jar. It's just a weird experience. But the other, so there's that. But then the question I have is from the perspective of a user, like say, you're driving to the movies. You know, it's illegal to drive and smoke dope. You get to the movies, you park, you want to go see the movie, you want to have a tote because you're going to go see some cool Star Wars movie or something. And it, what's the legality of standing in the parking lot and having a few tokes? Or just being in the city in general, what are the legal restrictions on using marijuana? So that's, well, that's my question. That's a great, great question. question. That's a great question. So California. I'll get, I'll get off. I'll get okay, off. you'll take your answer offline. Okay, great. Thanks. All right, go ahead, uh, Amanda. So, you know, California, uh, no surprise to anyone, uh, doesn't allow cannabis smoking in public because we don't allow smoking in public. And anywhere that you can't use tobacco, you can't smoke cannabis. So that's technically the law. Now, is it an arrestable offense? No. Um, could you get a ticket? Depends on the mood of the cop and the city that you're in. Um, some and maybe city, the color of your skin. Definitely the color of your skin. Um, so I would say it's really up to each person to decide what kind of risk they're going to take. Now, you know, if you're going to go watch a movie and you decide to just take a quick toke in the parking lot before you go in um, and you're just there for five minutes, you know, I'm not 100% going to say that, but probably nothing is going to happen to you. Um, you know, it's definitely going to be less of a problem than if you're driving while doing it, right? So using it in a, in a motor vehicle that's in motion. Um, don't do it on school grounds or any place where children are around, you know, kind of these drug-free school zones. 
Um, and don't do it on other people's private property, right? So like, don't, you know, go onto somebody's yard or driveway to do it if you don't own that house or know that person. So don't I do it indoors anywhere that isn't your house or a friend's house. Exactly, that isn't allowed. Um, but one thing folks should know is, and we'll probably see this more often, is that um, some dispensaries have consumption areas. So that's a place you can absolutely go. So if there's one near the movie theater, you could walk over there, have your cannabis, go to the movie, almost like going to a bar to get a drink, you know, before going to a movie. So Plant Shop, the dispensary I mentioned, they have a really nice outdoor lounge where you can sit and consume. Uh, Heritage, the other one that I mentioned, they're going to be opening up a consumption lounge. Um, I believe there's a couple other dispensaries over near Mendocino College that have consumption lounges. So these kind of bars for cannabis, I think are something we're going to start to see more of. And they really are there so that people don't have to break the law and they don't have to consume in inappropriate places. And they can go someplace where they can relax and not have to look around them every two minutes to see if someone's coming um, and actually be able to enjoy their cannabis. And maybe be a little social. Yeah, and actually be a little social. Yeah. Exactly. All right, we have another call. Hi, caller, you're live on the air. Hi. I'm just uh, stupid. I want to know what the significance of this day is. Oh, I'm happy to tell you that. Um, I'll give you your answer offline. And you're not stupid. You're curious. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so for the caller and anyone else who's joining us late for this special cannabis edition of the Farm and Garden Show, uh, today 420 is, I don't, it's probably international at this point, don't you think, Amanda? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, is um just there's a lot of rumors about why today is the day is the sort of international cannabis or marijuana day. But the most credible origin story comes from Marin County in the 70s. Some high school students would meet at 420 in the afternoon and get high together. And that's really it. It's pretty basic. <laughs> but I do want to add something to that. Okay. Because you know, nowadays, and I saw a couple of people posting about this earlier, that 420 has become commercial, like Valentine's Day, you know, Jack in the Box has a 420 special, and all these fast food restaurants have these 420 specials. And, you know, now that it's legal, it may seem a little bit more just like, you know, an excuse to use a lot of cannabis. But back during Prohibition, you know, I remember in the 90s living in Chicago, and 420 was a day of solidarity. And it was a day where people felt like they could be open about the fact that they were cannabis consumers because there was like safety in numbers. So it used to have this meaning of like, on today, I'm not going to be ashamed of the fact that I consume cannabis and I'm going to rally together with my community to the fact that we deserve to be treated like everyone else and we shouldn't be subject to these criminal penalties. And so I think one thing moving forward that would be really nice is if 420 became about thinking about the activism that still needs to happen and the fact that there are a lot of states in the U.S. where consuming, possessing cannabis is still a crime. And there are people in jail right now for doing the same thing that I'm going to go do and enjoy after this radio broadcast. And, and that so those people are disproportionately black and brown exactly, people exactly. and that those exactly. same black and brown communities are not the ones benefiting from legalization. It's white people, for the most part, getting the funds and investments and licenses to open up, you know, commercial shops. So exactly. I'm all so for think- making it about activism. Instead of having it be about, you know, a special at Jack in the Box, like let's have it be about, you know, raising money for organizations that are working to change this. Is there an organization you could recommend if people are feeling like they like to make a donation in honor of 420? 
Uh, well, there's a couple of them. Um, the Last Prisoner Project is a really great one to check out that works specifically on freeing marijuana prisoners. Uh, the Drug Policy Alliance works to change drug laws, not just around cannabis, but other substances as well. Of course, the ACLU does really amazing work around drug policy. And then there's great organizations like Students for Sensible Drug Policy that really activates young people on campuses to get involved with the social justice components of the drug war. I love that. Okay, we have a call. Let's try to squeeze it in. Hi, caller. You have just a couple minutes. You're live on the air. Yes, hi. I was wondering if your guest had a reliable source that I could quote about the prevalence of marijuana being deadly and causing death. Because I have some relatives in Kansas where it's still a felony, and their little local newspaper that I subscribe to keeps putting out these articles about how, oh, in Colorado all these people died after marijuana became legal there. And I haven't ever been able to look up and find any statistics that talk about that. And I was wondering if your guest had some. Great question. And I'll hang up and listen to you. Thanks for the interesting show. Yeah, thanks for calling. Well, that's a great question. And, you know, it's really unfortunate that um, that that's propaganda is still out there. Um, so, you know, in terms of cannabis never causing any deaths, really the best credible evidence is how cannabis works on the brain, to be honest. Um, you know, cannabinoids do not impact the part of the brain that regulates breathing, which means that no matter how much you consume, you'll never stop breathing. A lot of times when they talk about deaths from cannabis, what they're talking about are either people with pre-existing heart conditions or other conditions that were exacerbated by the fact that cannabis is a stimulant and it makes your heart rate increase and your pulse increase, or it's individuals that are consuming something that isn't cannabis, but is designed to be like cannabis and can be sold um, in the unregulated market. Or they're looking at people that maybe were intoxicated with cannabis and had an accident and then blaming that on the cannabis as a cannabis death. Um, you know, the reality is nobody's ever had a fatal overdose from cannabis. However, there are other substances out there that are marketed as cannabis. Like I said, um, Spice and K2 were the popular ones a few years ago. Now we're seeing Delta 8, which is a hemp-derived cannabinoid, which you could do a whole other show on. So it's really about looking into the details. Um, but in terms of like a statistic, it's really goes back to just how cannabis works on the body. Um, but Elizabeth, if you want, I can definitely find some uh, research articles that talk about that. Um, I don't know if there's someplace you could post them. Sure. Um, or yeah. Or listener, you can email dj at kzyx.org and I can send those directly to you. Or just put me in touch with the listener. Yeah, and absolutely. I'd be, I'd be happy to. Well, Amanda, I didn't even get to all of the questions, but that is the end of our show. I'd love to have you back on so we can have even more in-depth conversations about uh, marijuana and marijuana policy and growing and consumption. Um, it's just been a delight to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a fun way to spend 420. Yes, and a happy 420 to all who celebrate. And um, yeah, we'll be back in a couple weeks with more Farm and Garden Show. Until then, stay safe out there if you're going to smoke in public. <laughs>
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.